Welcome to the Hurricane Center podcast, produced by the Storm Science Network and part of the National Tropical Weather Conference. This podcast is made possible by USAA, the South Padre Island Convention and Tourist Bureau, and Plylock's Hurricane Clips. Uh, again, we bring in you uh, uh, Mark Suddeth today. He's uh, uh, pioneering the way to remote sense landfalling hurricanes, both uh, in visual and in conventional data. And uh, we thought it'd be great, given all the landfalls we've had that he's been able to intercept, to bring him on to give us a snapshot of some of the neat stuff he's finding. Mark's just down the road from me in uh, Surfside, Texas, on the beach. Uh, take it away, Mark. Yeah, good to be here, Bill, everybody. The um, National Tropical Weather Conference, you know, we have that down in South Padre and couldn't do it this year in person. So this is a great thing. I love it. I'm very impressed with your control center, Alex, and all the stuff you're able to bring in. And I'm glad to be here this morning. Um, and I'm actually not far from where you live, Bill. I'm actually over uh, near the Bucky's um, in um, uh, Webster or, you know, Texas City, whatever, the home two suites. We had a camera over in Surfside. Um, I'm here for Beta. I was here for the first landfalling Greek name storm in U.S. history. So, I'll get my trophy. Um, but today we're going to talk about Laura, uh, Category 4 Hurricane Laura, uh, back at the end of August there. Big impact uh, for southwest Louisiana, as you all know. And thanks to the fantastic support that my team and I have had through crowdfunding over the years, and especially these last two years, we have amassed quite a bit of technology and equipment to put out and we did that, uh, put the most equipment ever uh, for a single event. I think it was 12 different camera systems. Um, I think it was like eight pressure sensors, two weather stations. When I say weather station, I'll show you a picture of, of what they look like. That includes the anemometer that measures the wind speed. Those are very expensive. And so those are harder to come by. And they're also larger, the pressure sensors are very small. Um, and we had a really good effort, it was myself, my good friend, uh, longtime friend and hurricane colleague, his name is Mike Farrow from Wilmington, North Carolina. One of our crowdfunding partners, his name is Brent Lynn. He's from the Virgin Islands. He not only helps to fund what we do, but he's hands-on, comes in and helps in person. And then he also does the post, kind of our version of the tropical cyclone report, which we'll get into in just a minute. I'll show you the work that he did there uh, and very, very detailed work that he did with that. And then of course, Greg Nordstrom, uh, an instructor with Mississippi State University. Uh, he lives in Gulfport now uh, with his wife, Taylor. She's a meteorologist for WLOX. So it's a big weather family. It's um, a good group of people. There's four of us and we work together and we did a really uh, remarkable job working as a team, but then also working with individuals in the public just amazing the people we meet. Um, and that's a story for another day, how we do all of this. It's, it's just, it's really, um, I'm very proud of what we did and we've compiled the data. So I'm gonna go ahead and show, share the screen. Uh, there we go, bingo. All right, so um, Hurricane Laura, of course, started out around the 19th of August and uh, made landfall 26th into the 27th and finally became post-tropical, et cetera, on the 29th of August, and uh, had an ACE 
Um, and only had about 13 ACE units because it was short-lived, the accumulated cyclone energy. Uh, category four, but that was a luckily a, a fairly short period of time. And again, I'm gonna mention that this PDF file, and I'm gonna share this publicly after we're done. I'll put a link to it on Twitter. Anybody can download this and you can share it with whomever you wish. It's for the public and academia, et cetera, to consume and to digest uh, as part of what we do, you know, for the greater good, as they say. Uh, but this was produced by Brent. I don't have the patience for stuff like this. The infographics that he does are remarkable. So a couple of quotes uh, that we like to put in there. Um, I said, you know, the Laura is uh, gonna be a beast. You know, it did, it looked like it was gonna be really bad. Uh, Marco, you remember that it was the whole Marco Laura crossing in the Gulf thing and um, the traditional media outlets made a big deal about that. And it was sort of an exciting time and exciting doesn't always mean good. Keep that in mind, you know, it was kind of nerve wracking too, but Laura looked like it was gonna be the real deal. Um, and even Greg echoed that, you know, he said, Marco's gonna get sheared, Laura is the real deal. And that turned out to be the case. So what we did is we set up equipment across a pretty vast area um, along the Louisiana coast. Uh, we had a, a camera system and a pressure sensor as far east as Grand Isle, Louisiana. And because these camera boxes, the, the cameras will run for 80 hours, they have the ability to run for 80 hours. The box that we set up for Marco ran through the day Wednesday as Laura passed by. So we actually were able to catch some effects from Laura. And then of course the pressure sensor, we have it sampling the data. In this case, every two minutes, and those things will run for months on just a small little lithium battery. And so the pressure data spans all the way from Marco through Laura. But uh, as you can see on the graphic there, uh, we had Grand Isle, Louisiana, all the way over to um, Lake Charles. We had a couple of systems there. Uh, Holly Beach, Cameron, Hackberry, Johnson Bayou. Of course, Johnson Bayou is where Rita made landfall. Uh, Port Arthur, a couple of them in Port Arthur. Um, and then Sabine Pass, uh, all pressure sensors. And then we had two of these, let me just scroll down past some of the data here. We had two of these weather stations, you can see right there. And um, Brent, where he's doing the, yeah, you know, uh, that's the one, it was on the Shoopeak Bayou, right on the bridge there, these Jersey wall clamps that we're able to, uh, we've, we've modified to, put the, the mast on and the box and everything. Something happened to that one. We don't know what, but it was about 9.50 local time, the night of landfall, the data from that quit. Uh, it reports every minute and it just quit. And we didn't know why. And when we went back to get it a couple of days later after landfall, it was gone. And you, know, you might speculate, well, maybe it blew into the bayou. Well, no, it didn't. Those things are clamped down big time you know we've tested them the dot uses these to put signs on the edges of uh, jersey walls and interstates and trucks go by at 80 miles an hour constantly it didn't blow off somebody lifted it off of that and threw it into the bayou that's just the only explanation 
or aliens, as some people have speculated. I'm going to go with people. Somebody sabotaged it. It's a real shame, uh, and it's gone. But uh, the other one that we had was up on the Sabine Pass, and you can see that right over here in the upper left-hand corner picture. That's Mike Farrow, and uh, that one recorded some excellent data, and it was actually strapped down using ratchet straps, so much harder to unhook and throw into the Sabine River. Um, so let's go back up to the initial map here. So again, a remarkable area covered, and we were very, very excited to capture this data from the meteorological side as well as the remote cam side. So um, the cameras, and let me just bring me back just for a second, we'll stop sharing. So the cameras um, that we had set up, uh, one in Cameron, right there at ground zero where we thought it was gonna, you know, the eye was gonna come over. And the camera systems, of course, give us a visual, but they also help people at the National Hurricane Center. We share this with them. The local weather service offices, a good friend of mine, meteorologist at Lake Charles, Lance, uh, was watching these. You know, they're very important. The Weather Channel uses them. Uh, we put them out on the public realm on YouTube, and it, it gives us a, a eyes on the ground. But then you also get to see, especially when people evacuate, something like a, a Laura, which is very dangerous, we're able to see what's happening while it's happening. And nightfall came and you know the lights went out because the, the grid finally went down, the power went out. And we put that camera into night vision mode and you can see it looks like you're inside of a car wash. There's just not much you can do. If you wanna put $100,000 of Hollywood lighting out there, maybe you see something, but usually you don't, especially in the eye wall of a major hurricane at night. It's just not possible. But what happened right about the time that the eye was just about to move over that camera, it looked like the water had come up very quickly because all of a sudden we saw and heard water. You know, and I assumed, and the camera was about nine and a half feet off the ground, that the water level had risen and met the camera. Well, it turns out that was incorrect. Uh, the pole that the camera was on had snapped. We later found this out through aerial video uh, taken by another group. And we saw the pole laying in the water, uh, in the flood water the next day, uh, and the camera box was still attached to it. Um, and so that's what happened. The pole snapped. The camera actually kept streaming live in the water. But you know, you can't take your iPhone, even if it's in a life-proof case, down in the bottom of a pool and stream live because RF radio frequencies don't go through water very well. So it's not that it failed, it just doesn't stream through water. But the pressure sensor kept on doing its thing. And that became very, very important to us because the eye went, I mean, almost as perfect as you could ask for right over that pressure sensor in um, Cameron. So I'm gonna go back and we'll share the uh, screen again here. Let's see. What did I do? Uh, come on, Zoom. What have I done wrong? I'm trying to share my screen. I can't get Zoom to come back up. Oh, there we go. So share screen, sorry. <laughs> Bingo. All right, so um, it took a couple of days, but we rounded up the equipment and 
This is a graph here of all the different pressure data that we recorded. Um, and the lowest, of course, was down there in Cameron. And I'm gonna explain Cameron separately in just a minute. Um, so what's neat about this is you can see the distribution and you know, the farther away that you are from the center, the higher the pressures are, obviously. And then there's different time shifts as well. You know, you have the time there. And I think this is just really, really neat to show you not only the pressure gradient, you know, the difference in pressure over distance, but also the pressure gradient over time and where the center is versus where the instrumentation was, uh, was pretty cool. You know, that it made landfall in Cameron, moved its way north, finally made it over Lake Charles where we recorded uh, 953.9. And then, you know, you have distance wise, the center is over Cameron, but over in Johnson Bayou, which is 25 miles away, you know, you're talking 972 versus about 936 that we extrapolated. And I'll talk about what that means in a moment. Um, and then, you know, over in Port Arthur, 988. So it's just a great representation of how the pressure field was. And one of the things that came out of this that we're working on um, we had uh, several of these pressure sensors and a couple of these, and it's very important to note, like the one from Port Arthur, um, that was inside of a camera box that we had on the casino where Jim Cantori was reporting live. It was on the back of the casino at the lake. We were expecting the possibility of a significant surge coming in, and so it was a good shot to throw to if that was going to happen. Well, long story short, Charles Peak, who a lot of you know, he does work for the Weather Channel. He was around helping out. He does a remarkable job. And I asked him, hey, when you go back by there, would you mind grabbing the box for me? It's on a tree. Uh, we strapped it to a tree and we'll get it later. And it dawned on us that he could get the app from Kestrel. Kestrel is who we use uh, just like Josh Morgerman does for the data, the pressure data. And we said, I said, Charles, we download the Kestrel app. It's just a, um, you know, just a Kestrel link is what it's called. And you can talk to the pressure sensor in our box and go ahead and send me the CSV file. And lo and behold, that's what he did. And a light bulb went off. I was like, oh my gosh, you know, can you imagine what if we had 20 or 30 of these sensors that we could just start handing out to people that we meet before a hurricane arrives. They're evacuating, hopefully, especially a major hurricane. And we could crowdsource dozens of pressure readings in a hurricane in the future. And all those people would have to do when they come back and they get their lives in order, you know, priorities, right? We want the data immediately, but, you know, they got to see what their house is like or whatever. But they could download that data, send it to us, and so we started working on that, and we now have, as a result of LARA, 30 of these pressure sensors for a future, especially major hurricane landfall event. So Charles Peak was the first person in the history of our project to remotely access data and send it to us over email. I thought that was really remarkable, and it just, again, shows you how this teamwork idea, and you know, we all are in it together, kind of thing, it's not a competition, 
Um, and it's worked, it's worked very well. And so we're looking forward to that. So that's a little side story, serendipity, something positive happening by accident. Um, so there's some of the data, Sabine passed was 980. Um, and then I went all the way up to, if we go back to the map, I went up to uh, Shreveport for the landfall. I wanted to be away from the core, mainly so that I'm not knocked off the grid. Uh, you know, Shreveport had power, et cetera. I, I don't do anybody any good if I have no communications. And with all this equipment out there, there's really no need for me to be in the eye of the hurricane itself, unless it's during the day and we wanna launch that weather balloon, but that's a whole other story. Nighttime landfall, I thought, no, I'm not gonna mess with this. I went up to um, Shreveport with Mike and we waited there. And then the next morning we got out and um, you know, Alex and Tim and even Bill, you have to coach me here. I understand that that's pronounced Nakadish, N-A-T-C-H-I-T-O-C-H-E-S, is that right? Pretty close, Natchitoches is how I've heard it pronounced also with a different accent on the A, but that's that's right, it's not what it looks like. Right. Well, <laughs> then, you have, then you have across the uh, border in Texas, Nacogdoches, it looks right. fairly similar, but pronounced totally different. Right, well, we ended up there and uh, Mike and I intercepted the eye of Laura at uh, that place. And so we had data all the way up there um, and that was kind of neat to see uh, stopped. And you could actually see the rotation of what was left of the eye. And, you know, it was uh, pretty remarkable. Anyway, so we go back down to Lake Charles and uh, met with the team and uh, rounded up what equipment that we could. A um, Couple other side stories. So Holly Beach, we had a live camera and our backup GoPro camera system there, just like the one we used for Michael. And we really took a big hit here. We lost the weather station, like I said, more than likely to sabotage uh, at the um, Shupik Bayou. Uh, the telephone pole fell over in Cameron and both telephone poles or utility poles that we were using in Holly Beach snapped. And so we lost those boxes as well. And also, the data feed from Holly Beach uh, through the LTE, we use Verizon, there's just a hole there. And even the law enforcement officials were telling us because our camera was going in and out. And I know that Brett Adair was having the same issues there in Holly Beach. Um, and we didn't have any, any stream to speak of, it just wouldn't work. And here again is this idea of other people, you know, this is not the Mark Suttoth show. I don't own hurricanes. Mike Tice and Reed Timmer, they had their Windy Palms project and they put a weather station up in Holly Beach and they got some great data and we applaud that. That is great. The more, the better, you know, um, but Holly Beach was tough. Uh, it's interesting and Bill Reed, you know this, you know, after Rita, Holly Beach was wiped clean. And since then, the houses are built higher, 15 feet or so. And so most of the solidly built houses that aren't fishing camps, if you will, survived Laura fine. You know, there was some superficial damage and whatever, but the houses weren't swept away if they were elevated. Yet, it, you know, our stuff that we put on the telephone poles, we lost it, washed away in the surge. Surge was anywhere from four to six feet. Uh, and we went and looked for those boxes, um, used drones 
Um, the pressure sensors actually send out a Bluetooth signal. That's how Charles Peak was able to communicate with it. And that signal goes about 100, 150 feet. And we did everything. We walked a grid all through Holly Beach looking for that signal on my iPhone. Um, and it's just sometimes you lose. Uh, but we didn't get any data from Holly Beach, unfortunately. Um, but we did from everywhere else, and that's what I'll go through here. Um, so we looked at the pressure. Now let's talk about Cameron. And Cameron was our, you know, sort of um, uh, our, our big catch. Um, we got the data from Cameron thanks to an individual who is actually one of our crowdfunders um, who has property there. He works there. His name is Kyle. He's from Houston. And he was down there and he, in the days after Laura, and he saw the camera box and didn't get it because he figured, oh, there's Mark's box. I'll leave it and I'm sure it'll be along to get it in the future. He sent me a picture of it. And I told him, you know, oh, yeah, yeah, we do need it because we, we couldn't find it. We couldn't get there. And so he and his, his uh, work partner a day later went and got it. And he did the same thing that Charles Peake did. He took the box to Houston. He downloaded the Kestrel app and he sent us the CSV file. And the original data is right down here in the corner. And um, I think that... It lets me zoom in. Very nice. Thank you, PDF file. Now let's see how far over. Um, cool. So can you see in the right-hand corner underneath the thumbs up, the pressure graph? Can you all see that? I yes. can. Um, so that's the original graph there. I'll zoom in a little bit more. And so you see it's weird. It goes down, and then there's a huge spike, rapid spike up. And then it goes down again, and then it goes back up as the hurricane goes away. So we were wondering, like, what in the world caused that? You know, that's not good. That's not the data that we were expecting. Um, you know, we have some kind of a problem. So I took the data, and I met with a good friend of mine in Raleigh, North Carolina, that works for SAS, Statistical Analysis Software, SAS Institute. And we started thinking about why does the data do that? Does it go down and up and then down again? And I texted a couple people and, uh, and you can see that over here in the text box. I like this that Brent does this. So Brent um, says, you know, do you know what time the pole went down? Did anybody open the box to see if there was any water? And no, there was no water in the box. And uh, he says, you see the steady drop and then the major 20 millibar spike uh, or drop of 20 millibars spike and then it goes back down and i said yeah we can definitely figure out exactly when that pole snapped based on the nest cam video so we put it all together and we figured out exactly what happened and we got my friend jason to run this through sas and so here's what happened and exactly um i'm trying to remember what time it was uh it was like 12.20 or something like that a.m. Um, 12.55 was the lowest. So about 12.20 a.m., somewhere around there, the pole snaps. The surge had definitely come up several feet, and the box eventually got submerged under water. And what does water, how is water different than the atmosphere? It's denser. So the box is submerged, so the pressure is stronger 
on the pressure sensor. You know, it's got more atmosphere, if you will. So that explains the dramatic rise. It stayed submerged because of the pole being pretty darn heavy, that utility pole's heavy, until the surge began to go down as the eye passed and the core passed. Then the pressure resumed its normal trajectory. So using SAS, Jason ran it through sophisticated algorithms and it interpolated and extrapolated what we thought the pressure using machine learning would have been had that anomaly not occurred. And so our estimate is 936 millibars, maybe plus or minus one millibar, right? And that's pretty cool. And the little blue shaded area is the range there and the 95% um, uh, confidence is 936 millibars. And so using, you know, AI, we figured it out, you know, to the best of our ability. And we felt very confident in that because even, and Bill, you know this, uh, and it says it in the Hurricane Center advisories, the estimated minimum central pressure on any advisory, even if it says as measured by recon, it's still estimated because there's not a guy down there on the ocean surface, you know, looking at the barometer. And so, we felt like this was a big win for science that we you know, had a problem, we had anomalies in the data and we figured it out and we had a team of people on it and we're very proud of that. Um, and we have this really great data. So around 936 millibars and it correlates very well with some other data from Weatherflow, uh, a company, I think they're based out of Colorado. You guys know the Weatherflow data they also had some readings in the same vicinity, 936, 937 millibars. So we were very happy about that. The uh, radar, and just to give you an idea of where our sensors were, again, very remarkable in the way that uh, Brent has put this together. Cameron, Louisiana, almost the dead center of the eye. Um, the weather station in Hackberry, which of course went into the drink, sadly got the northern core had it not been thrown into the bayou. Lake Charles was a great spot, um, Port Arthur. You just see all the different stars there. Um, but remember, Lake Charles radar literally blew away, blew apart. And so we had to switch over to Houston Galveston. And so it's a little bit of a difference, you know, how the radar, the tilt and everything, it's, it's you know, uh, pretty accurate though to, to understand the placement of this uh, data, these data points. Um, and then let's look at the wind data. So the wind data that we did get <clears throat> from Sabine Pass, we had one gust and it's 36 miles from the center. And that one gust was 104.8 miles per hour. Um, and it's a little bit of an outlier, but you know, it was just one, probably three second gust, um, right as the core was coming through and, um, you know, the backside of it, you get some mesovortices, et cetera. But the maximum sustained wind, you know, up at this bridge, which is probably 80, 90 feet above uh, sea level, 76 miles per hour. And as you guys know, it's hard to measure hurricane force wind in a hurricane. And I say that because there's not that many instruments out there, if you think about it, relative to the population and reliable instruments. There's just not that many. So when you get a one minute average of 76 miles per hour. That's saying something, you know, because there's not hundreds of weather stations out there. Um, so this was a good catch too. I really wish we could have had the 
Shoe Pick Bayou data, but we don't, so there's that. Another analysis, just to give you an idea um, of where things were, that 104 miles per hour, this is uh, you know just a different look at the velocity tilt. Uh, and again, when I put this PDF out there, you can download this and look at it all you like. Um, 36 miles from the center, and that's the exact time that that 104 was measured. And you know that's telling you something, that the wind field of Laura really meant business. And you think about that right-hand side uh, over in the less populated areas of Creole in that 15 to 17 feet of surge, what they call peak surge, there's no doubt that that was unsurvivable. And luckily it came in in a fairly unpopulated area if it had been Lake Charles proper, you shifted this whole thing west five to 10 miles, it would have been a different story for sure. Um, and then just looking at other data and pictures, et cetera, where we were up near Nakadish or however you say it, um, right in the center there of the dying hurricane at that point, and uh, around 972 millibars uh, station pressure um, it was filling pretty rapidly, so it could have been as high as 980, you know, if you change the pressure to where we were relative to the elevation. It's about 300 feet in elevation there or something like that, according to our GPS. And then a few pictures here. Um, we do get excited about this because it's, it's exciting work to be able to put the technology to use. We're not excited that people's houses are going to be destroyed, that it's very stressful. It, there's, there, it, you know, the hurricane hunters, they, they, it's like anything else. When you have a dire situation and you're able to contribute something to it, you get excited about it, even if it has a negative impact on people, whatever that event is. Um, and you know, we have a great team and um, I've come a long way with it. These are my ideas, but the people that help make it happen uh, are, are the reason that we have this success. And you know, Brent runs a uh, business down on the Virgin Islands that literally deals with poop. He has a sewage and septic tank business in the VI, and in his spare time, he comes and helps out in hurricanes. Why? Because he went through the core of Irma, and it scared him into next week. And he's like, I got to learn more about this. I really do. I'm down in the VI. Irma scared me, my family, my sister. And he went on YouTube and he was learning, learning more, trying to learn more, which was great. That's what I want people to do. And he stumbled across my YouTube channel. And here we are. Social media brought us together. It's amazing. And he is an investor, if you will. He funds it, but then he helps out and he makes this, uh, these great pictures, these great visuals. And you see the aftermath. You know, this, this hurricane, it's the third one in 15 years. Rita, then Ike, and now Laura. Uh, these people are resilient. It's hurricane country, you know, Audrey, um, back in, what, 1957, right? Uh, everybody remembers that. And uh, the Lake Charles building, uh, the Capital One building, we had a GoPro on that and some remarkable visual data that we collected that we'll be going over and sharing as time uh, goes by. So that's the presentation of the PDF file. Any questions from you all? Now that I'm unmuted, uh, that uh, that's just fascinating uh, uh, to me that these kestrels hold up so well. Uh, you and others have, have, have used them there, and uh, 
good plug for that company and what they do. I actually have one of those here at the house. I'm going to drag it out and start playing with it just in day to day and see what I can do with it now. Uh, do you know if they happen to know if any of the citizens uh, that live in Cameron actually stayed there? I mean, there was erroneous reports that nobody was leaving. I don't think that was true, but uh, uh, people left. Um, there was a couple of people that left and stayed on, um, for the lack of a better word, like a barge or something. We did hear about that. A handful of people did stay behind, but they stayed in, you know, some pretty significant industrial grade buildings or barges or something related to the to the oil industry, from what I understand. Um, and there's probably, you know, a couple of people that are just not ever going to leave and, you know, by some luck and, you know, will of God, they survived. And the yep. fact that it didn't go right over them with the peak surge. Right. I think uh, the, uh, the, I'm hoping the folks in Holly Beach that, uh, that their new properties didn't get ripped away don't get false sense of security because they were oh, right. way near the onshore onslaught of the 15 to 20 foot core. Yeah, we talked to a lot of them. Several of them had come back in the days after when we were looking for our camera systems and, and pressure sensor. And they have a very healthy respect. Um, we were very impressed with that. They knew that they were uh, lucky and we didn't get a sense, at least in the days after, that they had, um, that there was any hubris. You know, that's the word. They, they seem to respect and understand we got lucky this time. You know, in Holly Beach, and it's like you said, Bill. I've heard you say it before that you build back bigger and better, but then the hurricanes just get bigger and worse. And they know that. They know that that it's just a matter of time. Uh, and what are you going to do? Build to twenty-five feet, then you're going to get a twenty-five foot surge. Yeah, I was wondering about your uh, your your uh, placing out in the public uh, where public has access to your sensors, maybe. Uh, if you uh, maybe it's too expensive, I, you can correct me if I'm wrong. But uh, like the stick net that Texas Tech puts out and other things, maybe design or, or uh, piggyback off that type of technology and have your own uh, 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 stand or, or pole situation that uh, you anchor to the ground and find uh, a citizens willing to host it on their on their property down there. We're doing that more and more with our units now that we're working with citizens. To and I did that for Sally. You know, I put it on Twitter. Hey, anybody in Dauphin Island? Anybody in Gulf Shores? And so we're doing that more and more. Um, but the weather stations, the wind, the wind data, as you guys know, is a extremely difficult because you have to sight the anemometer perfectly, or honestly, it's useless. And the sighting is so important, and these bridges are so exposed. They're already above the water by at least 10 meters. And it's just an unfortunate situation. Now, I don't know for sure. We didn't see, we don't have a confession. There's no evidence absolutely to the, you know, 100% certain that somebody unhooked that thing and threw it into the bayou. But it just seems to be at the time that it went offline, the wind was 19 miles per hour gusting to 34. It didn't blow into the bayou. I'm sorry. No, and it wouldn't have. It wouldn't have been hit by debris either. At no. all wind speed. You're right. And not at 34 miles per hour. The last reading at um, 9:50 p.m. was 19 gusting to 34, and it just inexplicably vanished. And the only other thing I'll say about that, we had a camera 
on a utility pole just down from the bridge looking at the bayou that um, we put there and the camera's like 10 feet off the ground. And around that same time that it went offline, we do see lights on the bridge from either a vehicle or somebody that walked up and whatever. And uh, you won't be able to figure out who it is, but just coincidentally, around the time that the weather station disappeared off the grid, there are lights seen on that bridge for about five minutes and you know, whatever, you know, just you move on and there's nothing we can do about it. Maybe we'll dig it up one day with a cast net or something or an anchor, you know, drag that because the, the data is stored on an SD card, but if somebody threw it into the bayou at, at 950, it stopped recording. And so it's kind of pointless. It will just be like the Titanic. It'll just stay buried and the secrets will go with it. In the belly of a large alligator. Yeah, really. Uh, yeah, you were sure before we went on the air, we were talking a bit about drones there. Uh, I assume they're not too useful in the dark and, right. and, and the other aspect uh, on there. What's what's the maximum wind speed you can operate a drone in in, in your work? Well, it depends. Um, the heavier the drone, the more wind it can handle. Um, the ones that we use, you know, probably 25 to 30 is about it. Um, I know that <clears throat> there's others that fly them in, in higher winds and they might have a heavier one. Um, for uh, Sally, I flew it over Dauphin Island and darn near lost it. Uh, the wind field for that was a little stronger and I had to put the return to home and it came back and it used everything it had to come back and I flew it down over Surfside Beach and Freeport the other day here for Beta. And those winds were, you know, 20 to 25 miles per hour. Um, and there just wasn't much of a, a change once we got up to height, uh, 50 to 100 feet up. But for Sally, there certainly was. Sally was much more gusty. And I thought that was interesting. You know, it was two different systems and, you know, Beta had a much more stable wind field, I guess. Sally was more turbulent and we almost lost it in Sally. But yeah, you can't fly them at night. You're not supposed to anyway, if you're licensed. Uh, it's an FAA thing. Um, and you really wouldn't see anything. I mean, I guess somebody could put some kind of FLIR, that FLIR stuff, or, you know, maybe one day we can see what's happening at night with one of these things in the eye of a hurricane. And the, the trick would be to get them to be operated remotely over IP, that if you could have a drone down in Cameron and the eye comes over and you could operate it like, like they do from Nevada, you know, with the real predators, you know, from Nellis. Right. Hurricane drones pre-positioned, yeah. <laughs> they fly when it's over. Yeah, the current technology and the cost that you have to overcome to be uh, that uh, rigorous. Right. I think the, the big use of those I can see, uh, if you're watching some of your videos on those, is uh, you know, pick a particularly vulnerable spot and get a lot of before footage and right. then go afterwards with the after footage. It'd be, that'd be wonderful data. Absolutely, especially when you can program stuff into the drone um, to do an exact flight path, you know, with the height and everything, you can you can do that and get some really accurate before and after. Sure. Yeah. Well, Tim, do you got uh, any questions coming in from our viewers? I do. I have a handful. The first uh, comes in from Marcel uh, Ligabo, who says, uh, "How do you guys and others solve the the problem in the field of dealing with COVID uh, yourselves and the locals that you see along the way as well?" 
we common sense i've traveled a lot since may um the end of may we started doing testing and done a lot of traveling i went out to arizona to study the monsoon a little bit with a little bit of there was i've flown and i'm gonna tell you the short answer is i respect it you know it's very confusing we have a lot of mixed signals unfortunately with it but i just look at it just like the hurricane stuff you know i'm not a, a virologist i'm not an immunologist i'm not anything related to medicine so i just look at the advice i follow it and i guess just following common sense we avoid large crowds we wear the masks we're around other people even on airplanes and i've been on american flights that have been packed every single seat and so far knock on wood none of us on the team have had any symptoms at all of covid and i think it's just using common sense and i try to apply that with hurricanes you know the greatest hurricane preparedness manual ever should be you know one page don't be where the hurricane is when it makes landfall and that's your answer so just common sense and that's a great question from marcel and uh, uh we live in that world and we've just had respect for the science of uh what we're told and followed that and so far so good doesn't mean we're invincible don't and i say that with the hurricanes too we're careful but it doesn't mean you, you slip up one time and in a hurricane something could happen and the same thing with this COVID situation it's every single day we just have to make sure we follow the guidelines and so far so good thank good you he has a follow-up question as well he says what's the next step for your work what do you think is missing um if we can somehow get in touch with elon musk and get access to the starlink data and i'm halfway serious that would solve our data problem probably that we would never lose the signal to our equipment um, we use verizon verizon is not a sponsor i pay my verizon bill just like everybody else does uh, but i will pitch that verizon has done fantastic you know their network's great we use the lte signal and these hot spots but the terrestrial network is vulnerable you know fiber gets cut water can reach what's called a switch you know there's a lot of complexities with it and so we're headed towards the next couple of years that eventually satellite-based broadband if it's affordable hopefully through the starlink program and musk's work that really might be a solution and then we could put cameras and stations across literally dozens of locations never lose the feed and maybe there's some rain fade during the core but then it would come back sure that would be remarkable and that's the next step um on a grand scale and then just growing the crowdfunding um and the crowdsourcing people it's not just the the ten dollars here and there that people pitch in monthly to to fund this but it's the equipment you know somebody gave us the idea a couple of years ago to put a, an amazon wish list out there on social media and let people who are in the position to purchase things that we need do so and then they feel like they have an investment in the project and they do and we just want to continue to grow that more and more develop our network of people that we work with houses along the coast that we can use as our own private weather stations so to speak um, and just grow it and see where it can go you know there's there's no limit that's the good part and the hurricanes aren't going to quit we know that as well 
Well, keep keep in mind that Elon's launching rockets five miles from the National Tropical Weather Conference. So, <laughs> so come on, Tim and Alex. He's our neighbor. So yes, absolutely. Trust me, we've tried. Um, what about GPS sensors on the boxes themselves, so that when it goes into the bayou, uh, you can follow it. Um, Satellite-based GPS, there's something called a spot locator. Um, they have a monthly fee, you can turn those off. I mean, there's a little bit of expense, but a lot of these that are GPS-based, they have to see the sky. And if it's buried under something or whatever, um, a snapping turtle likes to sit on top of it, anything, you're not gonna hear it. And um, Laura was the worst loss of equipment in 15 years, and I've done a lot of hurricanes, and so to me, is statistically not a not a problem and especially that we're for big hurricanes i'll say this for these really as bill reed calls them big honking hurricanes we're not going to use utility poles that are made out of wood ever again uh, we'll use houses that are built up that are more than likely going to survive um, and that'll just better our chances in in the first place and then in certain situations where they have the the big time steel utility poles, uh, we can attach equipment to that. Um, and we're working with local officials more and more uh, and different, you'd be surprised, even a chamber of commerce who normally doesn't want you to talk about hurricanes, they embrace it. They know, okay, look, hurricanes coming, we got, we'll do whatever we can to help. We know businesses, um, it's, it's, it's amazing what you can do when you get more people involved and when the chips are down, people don't want there to be hurricanes, but when there are, they're willing to help us out because they know it's an opportunity that, you know, while it's happening, I look at it like Jack Nicholson from A Few Good Men when he said, you want me on that wall. You know, you want me there. You know, doggone it, if you're gonna have a hurricane, we might as well have you guys out there doing this. We'll do whatever we can to help. And that's, that's made a big difference, even in Sally. We put all of our equipment in Sally on people's structures with their permission. And even Beta, you know, Tom Lee, he knows what we're talking about there. <laughs> and it works, it makes it so we can recover it. And it's just, it's, uh... and you know, we're the telephone pole issue is, is because one goes down and they're all connected, it brings all of them down in that one area. That's the problem. And so, yeah, we'll get away from that. You learn, you move forward. I've had a number of people say, why can't more chasers be more like Mark, put a camera in front of the things and get out rather than being out there standing in it and, and saying, look how bad it is. Uh, you know, let's just get the data and a picture is all we need. We don't need a person with their hair flying in the wind. Well, more are starting to do it. And, um, you know, and as I said before, it's not a competition. Uh, and so I welcome that. But I will say this, the hardest part of it, um, you can go out and you can build 20 of these boxes and you can put them all out there, spread them across 300 miles like we've done, but you gotta go back and get them. And very few people have the sort of stick to itness, as it were, to do that. And the patience, you might have to wait. You know, we're, I really wanted to get back into Alabama and Florida the next day to get my stuff from Sally, but I'm not the most important person in the world, man. They're trying to recover from that thing. The law enforcement, you know, the Gulf Shores, let me just give you a quick example. Gulf Shores PD, I worked with a guy there to put the stuff down for Sally out on the beach. And when we tried to get back in the next day, 
there was another gentleman at the roadblock, a young fella, he doesn't know me. And he said, no, sir, only so-and-so. And I didn't argue with him. And I mean, what am I gonna do, right? You know, I am the great Mark Suttoth. <laughs> no way. They got more important things. The box is chained somewhere down in the, you know what I mean? It's like, it'll still be there. So we're going back tomorrow to get it. You gotta have patience. Um, and you know, you gotta drive in some cases a lot, a lot of distance. And I just think that it's a lot harder than people think, but I would encourage anybody out there quote chasing. And I don't think there's much, you know, there's a lot of controversy about people doing that, I guess, but it's no different than wartime photographers, you know, and it's just man versus nature. Uh, be careful of course, and be respectful of people's property, but take a pressure sensor with you and start crowdsourcing just like Josh Morgerman does. People say he is one crazy guy to go into these cores and he is all about that core, but you gotta give it to Josh. He's got the pressure sensors and he has collected data in some incredible cyclones on this planet. And you know, you can't take that away from him even if you criticize well, that's just crazy to do that. Well, maybe, but somebody's got to get that data. And again, might as well be Josh, right? He's helping the greater good in the end. Absolutely. Absolutely. Bill, do you have any more thoughts before we wrap it up over here? Sure. I can go all day with this. Yeah, just, just a little snarky one there. Now it's coming up on October. You'll be able to chase the October landfall likely closer to home since they roll out of the Caribbean and come up your way. Yeah, well, we all know, just to, for people to remember, Florida is more at risk, the peninsula, in October than they are in September. And we all see the long-range GFS. We're not going to hide from it. We see that it's starting to sense that pattern. Even the, how uh, was it, the, um, that two-week threats and hazards assessment, I think it's from the Weather Prediction Center, uh, kind of indicates that in week two, slight chance of development in the Caribbean, and we're coming into what we call that second season. There is a secondary peak. You look at that, you know, peak, and there's that secondary one in, in October. And, you know, I'll, I'll remind you, since 2016, even looking at 15 with Joaquin, 16 was Matthew, 17 was Nate, 18 was Michael. Last year, we had Nestor in October. That was a little bit of a, okay, got the year off, tropical storm Nestor. It's 2020. I know it has no relevance really, but I would be ready for October if I were you and I was in Florida. Well, yeah, we're, in the, uh, we're, we're solidly in the La Nina pattern and right. the, the, there's, there's been virtually no issues with, with shear yet down in the Caribbean and that Western Caribbean is the climatological. Correct. There's some science behind that. We're not just right. It's not hype and whatever. You gotta watch that area. And, you know, we're coming up on 15 years since Wilma. And we'll just let, you know, and all that that implies. Thanks for joining us on Hurricane Center. Produced by the Storm Science Network and made possible by USAA, South Padre Island Convention and Tourist Bureau, and Plylux Hurricane Clips. You can find other episodes on HurricaneCenterLive.com.